Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we start, a hearty shout out to our new patron, Toby. Thank you for your support. Listeners, if you're interested in any of our Patreon tiers and the bonus content that comes along with them, you can check us out at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And hey, speaking of supporting the show, this week we've got a sponsored episode and a gift at that. This is for Meg from Danny, and it's a doozy. We are talking this week about the plastered skulls of Jericho, and it turns out of elsewhere. Spoilers. Oh, so before we get to the skulls and their whole deal, we're going to back up a little bit and talk about someone decidedly less ancient, think early 20th century CE, who plays a key role in this story, and that's Dame Kathleen Mary Kenyon, DBE, FBA, FSA. <laughs> I don't know what any of those mean. But, I only know um, DBE is Dame of the British Empire. Oh. She's, she's Dame Kathleen. Oh. Female British archaeologist. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely what that is. Female British archaeologist. <laughs> mm. And and the other one? Yep. Female. <laughs> <laughs> Surely F can stand for other things. <laughs> uh, um, great. Well, okay. So uh, I don't know what that means, but. At, is, as you could tell from all those letters, she's very accomplished. Oh, yeah. She was recognized, I think we mm. should say. She, she, had, she was damned. Yeah. So She's a dame. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm a dame of the Golden Horseshoe. The, like. Exam. Excuse me. Oh, it means I'm I'm a no, I'm a lady of a gold of the golden horseshoe. I like knights and ladies. Uh, the golden horseshoe is a thing for um, kids in West Virginia, where and you can you take this exam about like West Virginia mm. history and culture, mm, and mm-hmm. like the the top scorers in each county form the um, king and queen's court. Yes, get they <laughs> we I got knighted. <laughs> like you big nerd. Where's, where's your sword, and, nerd? But I have a a golden horseshoe um, somewhere. Did you did you bite it? Did you bite it? No, Once it's you got it's it? it's painted wood. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't bite it, but I could have. You would have figured it out. <laughs> yeah. So you may be thinking, "Ooh, a lady archaeologist in the early 1900s. How progressive!" Um, and to some extent, you're right. I mean, a lady archaeologist. Yeah, wow. Right? You're right there. Um, And so um, Kathleen Kenyon had a bit of a head start on the archaeology career train. Uh, Her father, Sir Frederick Kenyon, was the director of the British Museum and a celebrated classical and biblical scholar. (laughs) Both at once. 
both at once. Uh, so like her father, Kathleen Kenyon also wanted to study the past, not through ancient books and manuscripts as he did, but as an archaeologist. Uh, and indeed, she did. Um, and she participated in excavations at Zimbabwe and in Rome before beginning work at arguably her mo the most famous of her excavations at Jericho. To talk about Jericho, we have to zoom backwards in time again, simultaneously to the ancient past and to 1868. Because <laughs> um, uh, in 1868 is when the first excavations at Jericho were carried out by British archaeologist John Garstang. Technically, there was someone before him, but, well, you'll get to that. He was the first one who actually seriously excavated it. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, someone so, dabbled. No. Uh, so I'm going to quote now from the webpage of the Garstang Museum of Archaeology at the University of Liverpool. I won't do the accent. Thank you. <laughs> Liverpool. <laughs> the site of Jericho, located near the Jordan River on the West Bank, is, a f is famous for a number of reasons, not the least of which being its importance in biblical literature. The site contains the remains of no less than 20 successive settlements and is one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world, as well as the oldest known city with a protective wall. The Hebrew, for, <laughs> I know. the Hebrew name for Jericho, Jericho, is likely derived from the Canaanite word reach, meaning fragrant. This imagery evokes the natural landscape surrounding the site. Jericho is a tell site surrounded by copious natural springs, which have historically provided a compelling reason for human societies to settle nearby. The first excavations at the site of Jericho took place in 1868 under the auspices of Sir Charles Warren of the British Royal Engineers, who dug into the tell but found little to interest him and moved on. Yeah. John Garstang arrived in 1930 and excavated until 1936, reaching the Neolithic phase of site occupation and covering successive incarnations of the city. The aim of the excavation was to investigate the biblical history of the site, attempting to incorporate the stratigraphy of the site into the narrative of conquest portrayed in the Bible. Yeah, so I just want to correct something briefly that I said before, um, which is, well, I said, I, I wrote in the script and Amber, you unwittingly read. I'm so sorry. Um, so, so Garstang didn't excavate in 1868. He excavated in 1930. So the first, the first excavations were uh, uh, Warren, Sir Charles Warren, yeah. who showed up and was like, no, dig, dig, dig. Nah. And then, yeah. <laughs> meh. And then several years later in 1930, yeah. okay. Garstang showed up. Okay. So Okay, put your tweets away. Yeah, rest your thumbs. So time for another brief digression in this cascade of digressions to cover that narrative of conquest portrayed in the Bible, because it turns out the story is relevant given recent world events. The battle at Jericho is relayed in the book of Joshua, which is, I am reliably informed, in the Old Testament. According to the Bible, at around 1400 BCE, Jericho was the first city attacked by the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan River and entered Canaan. 
The wall of Jericho was destroyed when the Israelites walked around it for seven days, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. On the seventh day, Joshua commanded his people to blow their trumpets made of ram's horns, shofars, and shout at the walls until they finally fell down. That's the extremely abbreviated version, but you can see why biblical scholars and archaeologists might be interested in excavating here. If you have a place historically identified as the same place that this pivotal moment took place in biblical literature, and you can excavate until you find the city walls, and you can see what happened to those city walls, you get the idea. So, Garstang was the first to sort of professionally excavate at the site, which again was a tell, meaning a mound resulting from multiple occupation layers building over and over each other over time. Garstang was also the first to find one of the skulls that we're talking about today. And the rest, because yep, there's more than one, were uncovered by Kathleen Kenyon's excavations in the 1950s. Okay, so now we're caught up these skulls. There are seven of them from Jericho. One is typically discussed more than the others and is referred to as the Jericho skull, which is fun and confusing because there are others. The Jericho skull dates to around 9,500 years ago. And so I'm going to quote here from a National Geographic article from 2017. Ahem. The Jericho skull is one of seven plastered and ornamented Neolithic skulls excavated by archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon in 1953 at the site of Tel Es Sultan, otherwise known as Jericho, near the modern West Bank city of Jericho. Hey. The discovery, an archaeological sensation that brought Kenyon international fame, was first reported in National Geographic. Cool, oh, cool. Nat Geo. <laughs> cool story. While the seven skulls varied in detail, all had been originally stuffed with soil to support delicate facial bones before wet plaster was applied to create individualized facial features, such as ears, cheeks, and noses. You know, stuff you have on your face. Face stuff, yeah. Face stuff. Small marine shells represented eyes, and some skulls bore traces of paint. Since Kenyon's discovery, more than 50 such ornamented skulls have been discovered in Neolithic sites from the Middle East to central Turkey, and we will talk about some of those as well. While researchers generally agree that the objects represent an early form of ancestor worship, very little is known about who was chosen to be immortalized in plaster thousands of years ago and why. Other Neolithic plaster skulls have been digitally examined, but the skeletal remains inside the British Museum's Jericho skull are the first to be 3D printed and forensically reconstructed. So it's early in the episode, but let's take a quick ad break and then we're going to get forensic. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back and we're in the lab, a lab, several labs, some labs. We're in the lab. We're in the labs. Yep. Uh, So while the skulls from Jericho were thought to be portraits of individuals, the passage of thousands of years didn't do great things for the preservation of the detail sculpted into the plastic. Also, I really don't think that we could ever fully impress upon our listeners how old Jericho is. Like in terms of like the like continuous like series of occupations, like it is the oldest thing we can call a city. Mm -hmm. So it's like if we called today the beginning and New York City kept being New York City for 10,000 years. That's so old. It's so old. It's so old. Anyway, so the, uh, you know, the plaster skulls, uh, time, time wasn't kind to them, really. Um, so the features of the skulls had become what, what, what one might describe as a bit blobby. <laughs> one specifically me writing this script, yeah. looking at photos of the skulls going, eh. And also unsettling. Well, I find it's, that- it's kind of in that uncanny valley region, even it though is- it, because it's a real face, like it's a real, yeah. I mean, not a real face, it's a real skull. Yeah. And so yeah, it, it is unsettling, um, but still very, very cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not disagreeing with you. So in 2009, the Jericho skull, you know, the Jericho skull. Yeah, the first one, the Uh, one that's in the British Museum. (laughs) The, the. um, Underwent a micro CT scan. Uh, So it's a kitten scan. And researchers were able to get a look. (laughs) Researchers were able to get a look at the skull underneath the plaster. Drawing from that. The aforementioned 2017 National Geographic article, the self-referential National (laughs) Geographic article. The scan revealed an adult cranium. The lower jaw had been removed, more likely male than female. The septum was broken and rear molars were missing. The research team determined that the individual was over 40 years old when he died. Uh, He had broken teeth that were badly decayed and abscesses that must have caused him pain. His nose had also been broken, but this injury had healed before he died. So the broken broken septum was part of that broken nose. Yeah, I believe so. Yep. Um, The most striking feature found from the micro CT scan was the man's head shape. Varying thicknesses of bone indicated his head was tightly bound as an infant, permanently changing its shape. Yeah, that's neat, huh? Yeah. So a um, a, a hole had been carved in the back of the cranium so it could be packed with soil. And the scans even illuminated 9,500-year-old thumbprints from where someone eventually sealed the hole with fine clay. So... Um, in 2016, the British Museum created a digital 3D model of the cranium from the CT scanning data and learned even more about the Neolithic man inside the Jericho skull. While the scan suggested a broken nose, for instance, the 3D model demonstrated the severity of the damage. Yeah, so he got it, like hit really hard in the face. It was no mere broken nose. The research team decided to take the reconstruction even further and created a model for a 
3D print of the skull and enlisted the help of a firm that dealt specifically in facial reconstructions. So for archaeological purposes, but also for modern forensic investigations. Yeah, it was like a contract firm that worked with with law enforcement officials, but also archaeologists, which is neat. Using the printed cranium and the model of a human male lower jaw from another Neolithic site near Jericho, the forensic experts were able to reconstruct the facial musculature onto the digitally created remains from inside the Jericho skull, (laughs) just as people had fashioned cheeks, ears, and lips from plaster onto the original human bone more than 9,000 years ago. Yeah, and so listeners, in the show notes for this episode, we will have links to articles about the skull and a link to a blog post from the British Museum where you can see this reconstruction of the the man that was uh, that became the Jericho skull. It's kind of neat to see this, um, you know, a real human being, and we'll never know how accurate truly it is to to life because it's will someone we that. Well, I mean. I don't know if we're going to invent a time machine, but seems unlikely. Anyway, the pres- I mean, I'm not a physicist, who knows? The presence of seven of these skulls at Jericho, and as we mentioned earlier, dozens more in this general region from around the same time, suggests that there might have been some shared cultural practices going on. So that leads us to the questions, what's up with the Neolithic in these parts? What were people up to? In this part of the world, the term Neolithic refers to around 8500 to 5200 BCE, because remember, terms like Neolithic are retroactive, applied by archaeologists looking at cultural materials, and they have to do with types of behaviors popping up, not necessarily chunks of time that are the same everywhere. In this part of the world, the Neolithic is split into two pieces, pre-pottery Neolithic, PPN, uh, so it's PPNA and PPNB. And the name gives away the primary feature of the material culture of the Bees. time. And what? Bees? PPNB. Yeah. Oh, so close. Uh, no, it's it's lack of ceramics. Yeah. No, good try though. At the beginning of the Neolithic, the area that would become Jericho was, as we said, a prime resource area with natural springs making it a really desirable place to be, especially in a part of the world that is pretty dry sometimes. Around 11 to 12,000 years ago, or probably even a little earlier, dates are wiggly here because we're talking about a long process, people in this area began doing things to the local plant and animal resources to make them easier to get a hold of or more consistent or predictable in their availability. In other words, they developed agriculture. The archaeological record shows a transition from a lifestyle primarily supported by hunting and gathering to one focused on plant propagation and animal husbandry. And then, around 10,000 years ago, the Neolithic farmers of Jericho did something absolutely unprecedented that we know of. They raised a massive stone wall around the town. Built from stones hauled from the banks of the Jordan River more than a mile away. (laughs) In my head, every time I read that, it's like, oh, what a schlep. This wall was four to five meters high and surrounded by a deep ditch. It included a tower almost nine meters tall with an internal staircase of 22 stone steps. Within the wall, the people of Jericho lived in circular houses made from mud brick and plaster. Inside their homes, there were fire pits for cooking and stone querns for grinding flour. Like uh, grinding stones. I mean, what a great word. It's a great scrabble word. If they were making bread, they may have also been fermenting grain and drinking beer. There was no pottery. PPN, but they kept seeds and pulses, so legumes, in baskets and skins or in silos made from mud and straw. 
They stored tools here too, spears and nets for fishing in the river, flint-tipped arrows and sickles for reaping the fields. From loom weights, we know that there were looms and therefore weavers among them, though (laughs) the textiles made in Neolithic Jericho have not survived to present day. Along with the tools of everyday life, some kept more precious objects in their homes. Blades made from obsidian, a glassy volcanic rock from, not there, from the Anatolian mountains. So, well, Amber's laughing at me, but, you know, it it indicates... Trade well, obsidian, or... obsidian is something that um, the signatures of the gl- volcanic glass are such that you can, you can trace figure out exactly volcano. where it came from. Yeah. But mm-hmm. there, the key thing is there has to be a volcano, yeah. which there isn't. Not yeah, not in that area. No. <laughs> <laughs> and cowrie shells from the Red Sea. So these are. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned it anywhere else, but when I said marine shells for the um, Jericho skull's eyes, they're cowrie shells. and pieces of turquoise from the Sinai. They must have bartered for these things with the salt and bitumen that were so abundant in their own territory along trade routes that followed the north-south contour of the Rift Valley in eastern Africa. It may have been to protect this slow accumulation of wealth that the wall was built. Kathleen Kenyon, the British archaeologist who excavated here in the 1950s, certainly thought so. And Um, We're not going to quote much from it here, listeners, but we'll have it linked. um, Kathleen Kenyon's publication on her excavations at Jericho. We have the article here and we will link to it. Later archaeologists have suggested that it was raised to protect Jericho's mud brick homes against floods rather than against raids, or even that the tower located on the wall may have had a religious function. So turns out the big question... There, there are a lot of possibilities other than like obviously somebody would come and want to come and steal your stuff, come which is stuff. like really but like they have such nice yourself. stuff. They have obsidian. Um, you'd be like, yeah, the, the stuff that I am taking, <laughs> like <laughs> I, the archaeologist, am taking away. They probably wanted to protect this, but also With this wall that um, I can step over. Listeners who don't have a background in uh, Near Eastern archaeology, um, you are getting like such a like. I think this some is flavor. This no, this is just something that you know in archaeology 101. I just remember like learning about Jericho and like you like describing it. I just remember like the slides and like the images of <laughs> like the it's site. A fit, it's such a cool site, yeah. It is a really cool site. Um, and so the big question at Jericho, besides why plaster skulls, is why wall? Why why why, why wall? Why wall? But Amber. I also Uh have another question, which may become a recurring segment on this show. And that's, (laughs) why did this article make me mad? Oh, (laughs) Oh, yes. So I, and I'm not doing this. We usually play this game on Patreon. (laughs) Yeah. Well. Where I'm like, why did this make me mad? And you're like, because it's insulting. (laughs) I'm like, oh, right. Okay. This time the the roles are reversed and we're getting cranky on Maine because... (laughs) And I'm not doing this as a bit, I really promise, because I found a 2019 article from Time magazine that is perfectly relevant to this episode and to the question, why wall? Why and wall? Yet, why wall? And when when I was reading it, though, I, I felt strangely irritated and I can't put my finger on why. And wow. so I'm going to share parts of it with you, Amber, and our listeners, and, and maybe we can just um, try to parse out what my whole deal is here. <laughs> 
So um, I am now quoting from this article by an author that I will not throw under the bus, but the, it'll be linked in the show notes, listeners, if you want to read it. <clears throat> be it in songs and sermons or in bricks and mortar, walls are sui generis among the artifacts of human culture. If not quite a precondition of culture as such, they what? must count amount among <laughs> they must count among its first fruits as elemental or nearly so as the sharpened stone and the roaring fire. The minute a house's wooden frame or the fabric of a tent is rendered sufficiently sturdy, that membrane might be considered a shield. Restrict the definition to freestanding walls, and one is still confronted by a structure so rudimentary that it's hard to imagine not imagining it. The best we can say is that walls have been with us as long as there has been an us. The proof is at Jericho, the real Jericho, not the storied place of the Bible, but the historical site. One might say they are the same. <laughs> Sorry, that was me. That was me. Uh, known today as Tel Es Sultan, or Hill of the Sultan, located in the modern-day West Bank. Not only the oldest city wall known to us, the ninth millennium site is also, by most estimates, the oldest city. Full stop. Freestanding walls do not, however, spring organically out of the rocks and hills. Okay. It would seem intuitive that warfare or something like it must provide the spur to their construction. Yet Jericho demonstrates precisely the opposite. Not only is there no evidence of fighting in the area during the biblical period, there's also nothing to indicate any conflict in the ninth millennium BCE either. Excavations of burial sites from the period of the original wall's construction have shown that male longevity rates were comparatively high at the time, pointing to a period of relative peace. So just editorializing for a second, meaning that the males weren't going out and fighting and getting killed. Okay. From this seeming paradox has arisen the theory that, contrary to the city's celebrated place in biblical lore, the original Jericho was something very different from an unwelcoming stronghold. Okay, so that's, um, that's I think that's the part that made me really cranky, but that's really interesting. Lots of evidence for an unexpected interpretation given its, its sort of biblical narrative. So I will yeah. continue. Same article. I mean, but then again, like in the biblical narrative, they did just like show up and honk at it and the walls <laughs> fell down. Like there wasn't a battle. <laughs> there wasn't really a battle. Uh, um, but it was, you know, it meant to, it, it represented sort of the first. No, I, uh, I, under, I understand that it was sort of like, it was the first instance of like coming up against a pre-existing population in the place that, was the promised land yeah but exactly like i can't but it was they showed up and honked at it they showed well no they showed up and walked around it for seven days and then honked at it or did they walk yeah. around it and honk at the same time i was never clear the important on that. part was the honking yeah um, mm -hmm. and i've like read articles about like oh here is like somebody who did a study on how like at the right frequency and volume you could make a wall fall down. I think Mythbusters may have um, addressed this to some extent, but yeah. Uh, well, we'll get to a, um, a, a they couple received of little... like a letter of a cease and desist letter from the city of Dublin, California, where they're like, "Please stop! <laughs> you you already firebombed a house. Like, please stop!" Citizens of Alameda County are just like, "Please no." Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to continue from that same Time article. 
Non-defensive explanations for the city wall began to circulate in the 1980s, after anthropologist and archaeologist Ofer Bar-Yosef observed that the wall's pinnacle-like tower, a 28-foot structure located on the western flank of the original fortifications, was located behind the wall, not in front of it. Perhaps, Bar-Yosef speculated, it might have been meant as some kind of temple. In 2008, Tel Aviv-based researchers Ron Barkai and Roy Leran took this notion further, suggesting still broader ideological reasons for the city's mysterious armatures. I will say, um, Ron Barkai, I, I am aware of some of his work, and he's the one who recently published that article on cave paintings and hypoxia. And so he has a lot of kind of like philosophical ideas and kind of a little bit out there and like woo ideas this, about this archaeological is, interpretations. This is what the Neolithic is for. It's very interesting. Like this is like, this. We don't know what's going on, but what if? So tracking the astrological and topographical relationship of the wall, the tower and the landscape, the pair, Barkai and Laron, made a startling discovery. The tower was exactly placed so that when the sun set on the longest day of the year, the hills behind it made it appear as though the tower were casting a shadow precisely over the settlement, spreading from the tip of the lofty pinnacle to every house and hut in Jericho. Buckle up, because that's not... That's not even it. Seen from the proper perspective, the tower would appear as a representation of the peak of the Kurantul, the highest point in the Judean mountains, later renowned as the site of Christ's temptation, while the rest of the wall, quote, could symbolize the ridge from which the Kurantul emerges, end quote. They were not, the scholars concluded, built to keep anyone out. They were built to impress them and to invite them in. Now, I did not read this publication by Barkai and Leran. And so I don't know, the thing that, that popped up while I was researching this, though, was like, yes, the shadow is cast like that. Was it cast like that 9,500 years ago? Would that have also happened? I'm not sure. As Barkai and Liran also note, both wall and city predate the adoption of a fully agrarian lifestyle by the people living inside it. The citizens remained primarily hunter-gatherers until well after the wall's construction. The city dwellers were, in fact, almost indistinguishable from their nomadic cousins wandering through the valley below, looking up in awe at the wall. The only thing that separated them was the wall. The only thing it advertised was that the people of Jericho had built it. It is a prospect that would have staggered Enlightenment-era theorists. This wall, the earliest of its kind, may not have appeared for any particular reason. Instead, it created its own rationale, the idea itself of difference, that there could not be only an us, but a them. So the article goes on for a while more. And like, yeah, these are some interesting ideas, sort of philosophical more than archaeological, and it is perfectly reasonable for scholars to propose out-of-the-box theories, and yet I'm mad? Why am I mad? Amber, why am I mad? I have some theories as to why you're mad. Okay. Um, the first... <laughs> So one is a more Anna specific theory and one is a more like the author specific theory. The first right, let's being, go in, let's go in that order, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, if I know Anna, you do. Anna doesn't have as much patience, doesn't hold as much space for, for like philosophizing without um, things that are like very empirically data driven. Um, You're not wrong. I think I think that might be part of it. Of just I like, want to entertain the possibility, and yet I'm exasperated. 
Um, and then the other part is it's kind of, it's just kind of flowery. It is a bit. And it's, it's a little, um, I, I found, I think I th- reading through it again with the mindset of like, why am I mad at this? I found it a bit condescending, the tone of the article and it, the language of it, like sui generis. Come on. It It is written a bit pretentiously. It is written, but it, it is, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> there is that. Quite. Hmm. To me, it is written like someone would write a scene in which someone addresses the Royal Geographical Society. Mm. Like it has that sort of mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. air of erudition. Um, but mm. I thought, you know, I thought it was kind of fun. There are some like some nice turns of phrase in there, but but it's a bit literary. I think the combination of literary and like philosophical. And slightly <laughs> that's that's my problem. Uh, yeah. I'm really glad that uh, you are here to be that side of this great great therapy sesh for anna yeah thanks Um, but i I do something that gives me pause in all of these things is how hard it is for um popular media creators and perhaps also some researchers to distinguish jericho of nearly 10,000 years ago to the anything that has anything to do with anything in the Bible. Because in this, like in this article, we've talked about both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Those are separated by quite a bit of time. A lot of time, about 7,000 years. (laughs) Well, there's uh, like, what, 6,000 years and then another uh, thousand-ish. And the issue is, is really one of scale, really, because... You can think about huge chunks of time and look at broad patterns of things that are happening. But if you consider that amount of time in terms of lives lived or generations past or experiences experienced, it becomes so much more vast. Yeah. And 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 also, I, I hope it's become clear so far in this episode, there's a lot more to Jericho than the thing that happened in the book of Joshua. Yeah, like um, the stuff we're about to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for helping me with that. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, and I, I didn't realize that the the temptation of Christ happened at the peak of the Koran tool. That like Satan took him up there and was just like, "Do you see that? Eh? You see that? That's Jericho." <laughs> just, <laughs> they got walls. What do you think they got in those walls? Yeah, I don't know. Well, let's take another quick ad break. And wrap up by talking about some other sites where we see plaster skulls, and not just skulls, in the Neolithic. It's not just skulls. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. 
check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. Surprise, it's skulls. <laughs> <laughs> no, what if I said, what if I did that? It's like, there might be more than skulls. No, nope. there's not. <laughs> no, but there is though. <laughs> okay. Well, we're not in Jericho anymore. No, Dorothy. <laughs> We're at the site of Ein Gazelle, the spring of the gazelle. So gazelle springs, um, which is a, <laughs> a, spa. a, lo- yeah, a, a lovely natural spring fed place. Just nice. Just like Jericho. So it's a, a place that attracts people. And, and gazelles. <laughs> which is in, or if we're going to be technical, spring. <laughs> In terms of stratigraphy, stratigraphy under yeah. what is today um, Greater Metropolitan Amman, Jordan, um, and it also dates back to the Neolithic. Yeah. I'm going to quote here from a book chapter uh, from a site report by Denise Montbesserat, who says, "Quote: While surveying the Tell of Ain Gazal at the end of the 1987 season, members of the expedition spotted fragments of a human skull exposed in the profile of a bulldozer trench in a nearby highway construction site. Full excavation in 1988 revealed that the skull had a covering of plaster modeled in the form of a remarkably naturalistic face. The discovery was significant because skull 88-1 offers a striking <laughs> example of a funerary practice already illustrated in Gazal and in several other sites in the Levant and Turkey. The description of the material is mostly drawn from my own observations, since I was fortunate enough to study firsthand not only plastered skulls from Angazal, but also the specimens from Jericho at the Jordan Archaeological Museum in Amman, the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem, the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, the British Museum in London, and the University of Sydney. And all of this is uh, Shmont Besserat talking. Yeah, this is not Amber talking. I've, I've not. I've been to the Rockefeller Museum. <laughs> certainly, and also certainly not in 1987 when you were baby. Oh, I had a full excavation in 1988. You were excavated from <laughs> your mother? Yes. Well, um, so um, she goes on to say, I also had the opportunity to observe the Kfar HaHoresh skull and one of two examples from Beis Amun at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And finally, the Tel Ramad specimens on exhibit at the National Museum in Damascus. Only the Turkish authorities did not grant permission to view the skull of Koshoyuk in the Mira Museum. Just calling out the Turkish officials. Which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Which is is a long list of, of places and but that's a large um large swath of geography. Yeah. And um, it if it, it, we are making an assumption here, or at least we are implying an assumption that this consists of some kind of connected cultural practice, which might not be the case. Maybe people are separately plastering skulls. I don't know, but that's what seems to be happening. And considering yeah. the the geography involved, that is interesting. Sure is. Um, and I'm yeah. going to round out this quote from uh, Shmon Besserat saying, finally. <laughs> Some art criticism. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was her thing. Is her thing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Super not dead. Um, finally, one word must be added on the truly outstanding artistic quality of Skull 88-1. Except for the archaism denoted by the absence of eyelids, the linear nostrils, and the stylized ear, the 9,000-year-old plastered skull exhibits a remarkable sophistication in the treatment of the human visage. It exemplifies <laughs> the work of an... <laughs> visage. <laughs> Visage de l'homme. It exemplifies the work of an individual in full command of their craft, who handled the difficult plaster technology with great skill, captured the anatomy of the face, except for the eyelids, uh, and masterfully <laughs> executed the modeling. The area of the eyebrows and the dreamy expression of the eyes are particularly impressive. Great it is brows. interesting to speculate on the... <laughs> Thanks. Yours look good. Um, it is interesting yeah, to spec. <laughs> it is interesting to speculate on the impact of such plastered skulls on art. Compared to the small stone figurines characteristic of the previous PPNA period, the life-size reproduction of the human visage brought Levantine sculpture to a scale unknown before. Also, the plastered skulls were striving towards naturalism as no previous anthropomorphic art form had ever done. I mean, that's making um, some assumptions about the intent I of the artist. Love, but sure. I love art, like ancient Near Eastern art history. It is bananas. <laughs> like you just like go for it. I love it. I so love much. that you love it. And I love that you tolerate that. I have no patience for it. Like I want, I, I want to get better enough to finish my PhD. <laughs> well, maybe that's, I did best. definitely leave that PhD. <laughs> Um, but, oh, I couldn't do this all day. Um, but we will be doing this a little bit more because we're going to be jumping off this idea for our next deep cuts over on Patreon. Yes. And, and patrons, thank you so much for sticking with us. We have so many bonus episodes on deck and in, yeah, in hanging out in the bank, oh, hang, just, hanging out in our, in our in files our scripts and in our drives. We're getting to them. Uh, we're we're a team of two, so we're chugging away. And before we wrap up, I want to include something from Ein Gazal that maybe takes the plaster skull concept just a bit further. Whole plaster people, plaster people, uh, plaster plaster persons. Yes, I, I whole and partial. Yes, not in a weird dismembered huh. way. Just like busts versus Buster Plasterman. <laughs> Mm. Mm-hmm. Good name. <laughs> he's a he's a PI. Plaster individual. Okay. <laughs> In the earlier levels at Eingazal, there are small ceramic figures that seem to have been used as personal or familial ritual figures. There are figurines of both animals and people, 195 in total, though the majority are of cattle. The animal figures, so hmm. mostly cattle again, are of horned animals and the front part of the animal is the most clearly modeled. So they really, like once they got past the front legs, they really fun. Serving face? Serving, oh, serving cattle cows being like. Mm. Moo. They all give the impression <laughs> of dynamic force. They're smizing. Some of the animal figures have been stabbed in their vital parts. Oh, I got serious kind of quick. These figures have then been buried in the houses. Other figures were burned and then discarded with the rest of the fire. So definitely something cultural happening there. Do we know what that something is? Nope, we sure don't. That's a vital part. Like an area that would be a mortal wound. 
So they're they're stabbed in like their chest or their their undersides. Oh, okay. It's that it's yeah, that yeah. it's that scene from the gangs of New York. I drink your milkshake? No. God, oh, that's Anna. Not blood. Oh no. <laughs> that's the wrong movie. So what happens when little figurines aren't doing it for you? You make them big. Ein Gazal is renowned for a set of anthropomorphic statues found buried in pits in the vicinity of some special buildings that may have had ritual functions. These statues are half size, so like two to one to two scale, human figures modeled in white plaster around a core of bundled twigs. In a lot of cases, um, the twigs have sort of rotted away, so it's just the plaster shell, but in some cases they either left impressions or there was enough sort of material left to to see that there was a core, like a, an armature. The figures have painted clothes, hair, and in some cases, ornamental tattoos or body paint. The eyes are created using cowrie shells with a bitumen pupil and dioptase highlighting. What? No, I... The dioptase is an intense emerald green to bluish green copper cyclosilicate mineral. It's oh. transparent to translucent. Its luster is vitreous to subadamantine. It seems like either they had kind of bluey greeny eyes or they were wearing eyeliner it says highlighting so i'm not sure if they're it was hard to tell in the pictures i saw in any case contouring who am i to say in all 32 of those plaster figures were found in two caches 15 of them were full figures 15 of them were busts and two of them were fragmentary heads three of the busts were two-headed which is not like a weird the two-headed it's not it's not well, it's not like a like a two-headed beast kind of idea. It's the same idea as, you know, those Etruscan double sarcophagi where it's like man and wife oh, together no. as a double oh, portrait. Yeah. I, I think I think it's yeah. that kind of idea of like a couple. I don't know. But um, so this is kind of an extension of, first of all, it seems like plaster was the hot commodity in this region uh, about so, 10,000 years ago. Plaster of Paris, more like plaster of Jericho. Am I right? You are right. Wow. We're so funny. But okay. So taking a step back to Jericho, but not a step all the way back to the wall. No. Taking a step forward to a different wall in the time of the patriarchs in the book of Joshua, where they showed up and they went, yeah, they're honking. And it fell down. Um, You know, one shofar is quite loud. An army of shofars, terrifying. It's like bagpipes. Same idea. It's a war, it's a war trumpet. What? It's the same exact idea. No, I just thinking about it. Just like, oh. <laughs> so just, it woke everyone up and they were like, oh. Amber was bitten by a bagpipe as a small child. And she still, still got an allergy. <laughs> um, so was it was it conquered by trumpet? Was it conquered? Question mark. Question mark. Um, I didn't Why wall? think how wall. No. And here lies the difference between narrative and archaeological record because the archaeological record doesn't show evidence of conquering or of the walls suffering a catastrophic sort of mechanical failure um not mechanical structural failure that's there we go that's the word structural there it is yeah so they didn't they didn't be like somebody honk these walls down (laughs) (laughs) so there is actually dna evidence And so I found this from a 2017 article published in the American Journal of Human Genetics that suggests that the Canaanite population living in Jericho at the time of the biblical story wasn't annihilated at all, but rather displaced with descendants in what is today Lebanon. 
In fact, almost 90% of present-day Lebanese DNA is shared with Canaanites in the Bronze Age burials that the researchers sampled, suggesting that biblical reports were exaggerated. But, which is not to say that the, the two populations didn't come into conflict. One population definitely moved and another population took over. So maybe they were forced out of their region, but they didn't get totally wiped out. Yeah. So I thought sure that didn't. was very interesting. Um, it is very interesting. And Thank moreover, you. as we learned from that article that made Anna mad, uh, there wasn't much evidence for warfare at all at the time that would coincide with the account in the book of Joshua. But then again, much of the Bible is considered to be allegory. Um and much of it is oral histories that were collected over time and then rolled into a canon that was sort of decided <laughs> upon. Um, and so uh, we're not here to be biblical debunkers. Nope. Do you, do you hear that? Twitter? <laughs> so, yeah, that's not... It, do, it that's, does... It's not our um, job. It serves different purposes. So mm-hmm. the, the biblical narrative in Joshua serves a different purpose than the archaeological narratives in the ground. So what we do have at Jericho, at Ein Gazal, and at the other sites we mentioned is archaeological evidence of some really cool cultural shifts happening in this region along with the development of agriculture. Uh, so not to mention a real appreciation for the many uses of lime plaster. Yeah, and I don't think I mentioned that, but um, generally when we talk about plaster, it's derived from limestone. So that's uh-huh. what this was. Same deal. Yeah. I just didn't specifically mention it. um, And I think the most obvious use for lime plaster would be for like mortaring walls and like covering walls. Yes. Plastering walls even. There we go. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Little carpenter over here. Um, So (laughs) using it for both practical purposes, but also ornamental or... Ornamental, ritual, question mark. Yeah. So I have two more horns of Jericho facts question mark one is a fact one is one is one is definitely uh, a fact and one is a thing (laughs) the other is a lie (laughs) well that's the thing it's a thing that i remember hearing about somewhere and couldn't track it down to substantiate it but it's an interesting idea so i'll tell you that one first okay great and that is that i remember hearing somewhere and i i truly don't remember because this was like 15 years ago that there was a hypothesis that the the trumpeting the story of the trumpeting and sort of the offensive, the sonic offensive at Jericho was in fact a, a ruse to cover the sounds of sappers tunneling under the walls of Jericho. So the Israelite army rocks up to Jericho. They make a big display of marching around the walls and honking. And meanwhile, off to the side somewhere where the, all the marching isn't happening, there are tunnelers working to bring the walls down. That is completely, I thought that was really interesting and that's why it stuck with me. And I did some sort of light Google searching to try and find where I might've heard that, but I couldn't find it. So I'm I'm presenting that to you as a a very interesting theory and nothing more. An interesting theory towards something that we don't have archeological evidence for. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is genuinely a fact and it is terrifying. Um, oh, but interesting. Great. <laughs> yeah, but but interesting in light of kind of the reach of imagery and 
the sort of, sort of the, the power of the the biblical narrative of Jericho and the imagery that comes with it, which is that mm-hmm. the horns of Jericho were the name given uh, in German and in English to the sirens attached, the air sirens attached to German bombers in World War II. And so in war movies, when you hear that like... That terrifying noise that yeah. comes with an air raid. Those are the horns of Jericho, and so that like, I don't like that fact. No, I didn't take it, either. Take that fact back. <laughs> I think it's an important um, thing to kind of sit with, just sort of to understand. I don't know. Information has many faces, you know, and, and wow. stories have. Oh, yeah, I know. Right, I'm philosophizing over here. It's my turn. <laughs> It's my turn to to sit in the armchair and think well, my thoughts. Well, um, I've t- been taking furtive glances at the clock and it appears we are at the top of the hour. So I will need to get ready for my next client. I hope my copay covers this. <laughs> so, um, Meg... sorry (laughs) and everyone else um that's gonna do it for this episode on jericho all All of this all of of this (laughs) waving my hand around (laughs) danny i hope we did a good job and Thank you for sponsoring the episode and choosing this topic. Danny, Mm -hmm. Danny, everyone else, this is great. Anna, great job. Hey, thanks. Sorry about that Uh, fact. (laughs) Listeners, if you want a dirt episode on a topic of your choosing, possibly even with a horrible fact at the end, you can go to our website. (laughs) Kind of my specialty. (laughs) TheDirtPod.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page and click on sponsor an episode. Yep. It takes you through PayPal and there's a, a little function where you can type a message in and that's where you can put your choice of topic. And while you're over on our website, you can see all of our social media feed, or if you want to get there separately, you can also find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. Also on our website, you can find merch, including new merch in celebration of Pride Month. Woo! Yay! You don't have to give your money to corporations. You can give your money to us, actual ones. Actual (laughs) ones! actual prideful folk Um, you can also find our syllabus for educators our back catalog of episodes and so much more thanks everybody thank you we love you goodbye goodbye This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.